welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time, some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... I see dead people. I see dead people. Do you? Join me as I welcome renowned author and ghost hunter Leslie Rule to the show. In this segment, we examine paranormal activities associated with murders as well as suspicious unsolved disappearances. You do not have to believe in ghosts to be entertained by the stories in Leslie Rule's most recent book, Haunted in America. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, it's nice to be here. So let's, uh, for people who don't know you, and I don't know, they've been living under a rock. Um, you are, we, we must mention, you are the daughter of the late, great Ann Rule, uh, who has written many, many books, uh, true crime books, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. And uh, tell me again the title of her Bundy book. The Stranger Beside Me. She worked together and was it was a nonprofit or a government agency that helped uh, outreach, helped people? Well, yeah, it was a nonprofit organization that created the crisis clinic. It was a tel it was a hotline and it was set up by a family whose daughter was attacked. Uh, their daughter and her little brother, um, the, the older girl, I, I won't say her name. She did survive this attack. Mm -hmm. But this happened, I remember, because we were friends of the family. When I was about four, um, the daughter and the little brother went to a berry field, and they were picking berries when a mailman attacked. And he was stabbing the 12-year-old the with a knife. And she screamed at her little brother, run home. And he ran. And as he was walking down the street, a neighbor saw him and picked him up. And he didn't say one word to her, but when she dropped him off, he went into the house and told his mother that his sister was dead. As it turned out, she survived. And the family ended up creating the crisis clinic because the, uh, the man who would attack their daughter had said afterward that he tried to get help for his urges, but couldn't get anyone to, to help him. So the family decided they would set up this hotline with the idea that if someone else had murderous urges, they would have someone that they could call that would offer them help. Ironically, they hired Ted Bundy to answer the hotline. And uh, by a bizarre coincidence, because my mom was a true crime writer, at the time, um, they paired up my mom and Ted Bundy to work as partners two nights a week 
It was an old Victorian house in Seattle, Washington. And for about a year, they worked shifts together. And not only were they answering the phone when possible potential killers called, but for people who were depressed. Most of the calls were from suicidal people. So my mom and Ted Bundy saved a lot of lives together. And you knew Ted uh, Bundy as well, didn't you? When I was 14, my mother introduced me to serial killer Ted Bundy. This was, I'm, I'm almost 65, so in 1972, my two best friends and I went to the Rolling Stones concert at the Seattle Coliseum, and my mom happened to be volunteering that night with Ted Bundy at the crisis clinic answering the hotlines. And the, the buses didn't run very often, and it would have taken about three hours before uh, the bus arrived. My mom didn't want us to wait at the bus stop afterward because she didn't think it was safe. So she left the crisis clinic and came down the hill and picked us up and brought us back to the crisis clinic where we would be safe with her and Ted Bundy. And I remember walking in and my mom introducing us. And something struck me as off. Now, I can't say that I sensed evil, but I didn't get what my friends saw because they found Ted to be, they thought he was adorable and they giggled about it all night about how cute he was. But something bothered me. And it was mostly that he would not meet my eyes when my mom introduced us. And we were 14 and we were cute little girls as most 14 year old girls are. And Ted was 23, 24 at the time, but we were still used to, to young men, at least looking at us and, and flirting with us. But the fact that he wouldn't even look me in the eye struck me as odd. And I remember feeling really left out because I couldn't understand what my friends saw. And I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought, why can't I see what they're seeing? As most of us, when we're 14, we're not sure how we're supposed to react. And we look to our peers to see how we're supposed to think about things, what we're supposed to feel. And it was so different from what my friends were experiencing that I just thought that I had an issue, that there was a problem with me. And it, I really got kind of down. And I remember being quiet all night as they went on and on about Ted. Now, uh, how was the concert? The concert was good. Rolling Stones, my first wow. concert. Hey, you get off of my cloud. So, Leslie, uh, uh, tell my audience uh, a little bit about your, uh, your work, uh, books you've written. Well, actually, my, my first two uh, books were works of fiction and their suspense, and they were geared towards teenagers. I was Whispers from the Grave and Kill Me Again. And so they were a little bit murder mystery, a little bit young adult novel, and a little bit paranormal. And those were published in the mid-1990s. And after that, I did four nonfiction books of ghost stories and a book on angel encounters. And when you mentioned My Mom, Stranger Beside Me, I'd like to add that 
I wrote the afterword for the latest edition of The Stranger Beside Me, a 10-page afterword that was published in May 2022, just a few months ago. In doing uh, my research for today's podcast, um, I came across a fact that I did not know about you, uh, that your um, interest in, in, in ghosts and the paranormal and the spirits um, is is something you've been into for quite a long time and not something you came to uh, late in life. So tell us about uh, your interest in the paranormal and the ghostly unknown. Well, I grew up in a haunted house. Okay, well, that's sort of, there you go. That's where I started being interested. It was in Des Moines, Washington, on a windy cliff overlooking Puget Sound, and it was built on a Native American burial ground. So I grew up in a haunted house, and when I was 14, my mother introduced me to a serial killer. So I had kind of a spooky childhood. Now, I, I want to point out that your um, investigations of the paranormal, um, you, are, you do firsthand investigation when you can on site. It's not all done behind a desk in front of a computer. I like to go to haunted sites myself. And whenever possible, I like to get, do my own research and to talk to the people who have seen the ghosts. I want to be able to look someone in the eye and see if they're sincere. And when I uh, wrote the first four ghost books, I started researching in 1998 and worked on the books for the next decade. I had four come out during that period. And with each big case, I would fly to the city in question to do archival research because a big part of my research was the history of places as I tried to determine the source of the haunting. And back then, articles weren't online. Very few uh, records and newspaper articles were available online. In fact, when I started the research, I don't even think I had an email address yet in the, the mid-1990s. I don't know if I knew anybody who did. So I would have to go to the city in question and then either go to the library or a newspaper office and look through records. And a lot of times they weren't cataloged at all. They were just stacks of newspapers. And the more organized libraries had, um, had catalogs. So it was a great luxury as I revisited these stories. And now I subscribe to a number of newspaper databases. And I can search literally billions of newspaper articles from all over the world. I don't have to get off the couch. So I was able to find a lot of new information, a lot of new historical information that people aren't aware of. Um, it was still not that easy. It could take me three days sometimes to find the article I'm looking for because you do have to wade through a lot of information. Uh, but it's much easier than having to fly across the country and, and visit a library. Now, let's, um, I'm going to start with a couple that people might, would probably know the case or know the parties, and then we'll go to the, the more obscure ones. So let's start with um, the ghostly happenings around uh, the infamous case of the uh, Donner Party. Yes, because the sites with the most dramatic history tend to have 
the more intense hauntings, especially if the area hasn't changed much. Now, if, if they had gone in and put buildings all over the place, it probably wouldn't be as active. But it's now the Donner, Donner Memorial Park. So it's still woodsy and there's still the giant rock that served as a wall of the Murphy cabin, one of the cabins that the pioneers stayed in when they were stranded in the snow and now has a plaque on it with the names of those that died. So yes, the Donner Memorial Park is an active site and people report seeing apparitions there. And I actually have a photo in the book taken by a man named Jason Sweeten, who was really didn't believe in ghosts. He's a science minded, but he happened to be visiting the area when he was there on business and he was taking pictures of the scenery. And when he went back to his hotel, he was stunned to see that in the right-hand corner of one of his photos was the very distinctive image of the top of a little boy's face. You could see one blue eye. Uh, you could see the sun hitting his forehead. You could see the light brown hair. And he knew he was alone on the trail. It was quiet. He was the only one there. Um, Somehow, uh, apparently, this little ghost managed to, to run in, uh, in front of him and appear in one of his photographs. A number of people survived, and they survived by resorting to cannibalism. They had to in order to live. They were stranded there for a long period of time in the cold and the snow. There was nothing to eat. They, as their, as members of the party passed away, they had to, they had to consume them in order to live. Now, it's been said, but all his descendants say it's not true, but there are accusations against a man by the name of Lewis Casebrook. And it's been said that he actually murdered some of the people including a little boy about two years old. So that may be who appeared in Jason Sweeten's photo. There you go. Let's move on to a, a much more violent um, dispatch of uh, victims, uh, the Valeska Axe murders. That happened in Iowa, Valeska, Iowa, in the year 1912. It's an unsolved murder. The Moore family, uh, a couple and their three children, and two of their daughter's friends were murdered during the night uh, by an axe murder. And to this day, the case has not been solved. Now the the house is actually a museum and it attracts curiosity seekers and paranormal researchers who can spend the night there. The house has been set up so it resembles the day that the tragedy occurred in June 1912. They, they put a calendar on the wall uh, with open to the month of June 1912 and they got rid of some of the modern conveniences to duplicate the scene more accurately. 
And that's a pretty active sight. Uh, people will hear when they're downstairs, they'll hear somebody walking around upstairs. Um, witnesses have seen uh, a fog move from one room to the other in the upstairs area where the murders occurred. I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to make a plug for one of my favorite uh, ghostly sites, um, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in Fall River, which briefly is the actual house that the murders occurred in. And um, it has uh, been uh, preserved with, moder with modern replicas of the furniture at the time. And not only can you visit it and experience ghostly uh, phenomena, which I have, but you can also stay overnight in it. So again, it's uh, in Fall River and you can check it out online. And that's uh, my public service announcement for the day. So let's uh, talk about a case that actually you claim, uh, and I believe you, you have an exclusive to. And in the book, it's uh, entitled Lady of the Sea. Yes, the Queen Mary. And now she's in a lagoon, a man-made lagoon in Long Beach, California. She was a mighty ship launched in 1936, and she was uh, created by the White Star Canard Line, a British-owned uh, British ship line, and they actually were notorious for uh, building the Titanic, the White Star was, and they later, they later, uh, formed a corporation with Canard and combined their efforts about 20 years, 25 years after the disastrous uh, Titanic launch, they made the Queen Mary. Um, she was built in a, in a Scotland shipyard and she was 10% bigger than the Titanic. And this time they made an effort to advertise safety features. They had a couple dozen lifeboats that with engines, uh, with buoyancy chambers that could fit something like 45 people each. And they made a point to let the public know that this time the ship was safe. Not only that, it had luxuries that people had never heard of before in 1936. And one of the things that astounded people was the fact that you can make telephone calls from the ship and that in fact, two calls could be made simultaneously to two different places, which now, you know, that's not a big deal to anybody who's been born in the last 20 years. But think of the technology that had to be created in order to make that happen. They had um, a dining area that served 10,000 meals a day that stretched the width of the ship. The, they had perfumed air. The cabins had their own bathrooms. They had two swimming pools, two heated swimming pools. And it was something that people had never seen before. Unfortunately, the ship has seen a lot of tragedy over the years. And I was able to dig up something that I saw nowhere else. I don't think any other ghost hunter has come across this because I searched thoroughly and could find no other mention of it. Now, the reason I searched for this particular ghost was because of an Unsolved Mysteries episode in the 1980s hosted by Robert Stack. 
the story was about the haunted Queen Mary, and they interviewed witnesses, including a woman by the name of uh, Carol Layden, who was a waitress on the ship. And she told a fascinating story about the quiet morning she went into work. She was the only one there when she glanced out into the restaurant and noticed that there was a woman seated at one of the tables. She approached her with coffee and she noticed that this beautiful young woman was dressed in clothing that seemed to be from another era. And her hair was braided and coiled. Now, back in the 1930s, women often wore their hair like this. The um, long braids were coiled and pressed against the side of the head. And your uh, your ba- your basic Princess Leia look. Exactly. Yes. And so uh, Carol served the coffee. The woman said not one word to her. And as Carol walked away, she stole a glance back for one last look at this lady. And it was one last look because the woman was long gone. She'd vanished. And she concluded, of course, that it was a ghost because there was no way the woman could have left without her seeing her go. So I was fascinated by this account. And I I had a feeling that maybe a woman had vanished from the ship. And that feeling was so strong that I spent three or four days searching for a case of a woman who disappeared from the ship. And I finally found her. Uh, this happened in the summer of 1936, shortly after the Queen Mary's maiden voyage. A young woman by the name of Jane Carey who was a Smith's college student, had spent a year in Italy studying the Italian language and was on her way home. Uh, And she was on the Queen Mary and three quarters quarters of the way through the voyage from England to New York on a foggy Sunday morning, she vanished without a trace. Um, did no one um, miss miss her? I mean, was she traveling with someone or was she traveling alone? This is what's interesting is that Jane Carey was supposedly traveling alone, but I uncovered something that revealed she was actually traveling with a young man named William Pritchard, who had also been abroad for a year. Um, and he lived in the same neighborhood that Jane did in Lynn, Massachusetts. They both were from wealthy families and they both lived in mansions. It's like five minute walk from each other's houses and they were friends. But what was odd was that William told reporters that he had not seen Jane in England, but that he had, he had ran into her on the ship. I found an article about William and Jane missing the Queen Mary. And they took a tender, a, a little boat they used to catch up, and they were able to board the Queen Mary after she launched from shore. And the little article uh, mentioned that, and this had nothing to do with the fact she disappeared. This article appeared before she disappeared. It was just sort of a human interest article about how these two Americans had missed the ship. So uh, they had they had traveled together um some distance i believe it was from london and then missed the ship took a tender and clambered aboard so they actually had spent some time together before they got on the ship now i'm not implying that william did anything to her 
it's a, it's a um, it's an issue that if it had happened today, reporters would have been all over it, questioning it. But no one was aware that what he was telling people was not completely true. I'm aware of it only because I have access to uh, millions of newspaper articles that people didn't have access to in 1936. I don't think William did anything to her. I actually think that um, the most likely scenario is that they did have a secret romance, but they didn't want their parents to know. Um, Jane was supposed to be on a different ship. Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I say the Stanton Dam. And I was able to look at archives, uh, pictures of the actual um, ship logs. And it said that on the Staten Dam, it said that Jane Carey and William Pritchard canceled. And then I looked on the Queen Mary uh, log and it showed that they were passengers on that ship. But then there was a line drawn through Jane Carey's name and at the bottom, it said, lost at sea. I don't have any reason to think that this young man did anything to her. It's just something people would question today um, if, this, if this came up. I think most likely somebody did harm her. I don't think it was suicide as the, um, the ship management wanted people to believe. Uh, I found a number of females were disappearing from these ocean liners during this era. And I suspect there was a serial killer either working for the ships or passenger on the ships. There were all these females who disappeared and the ships were always quick to say it was suicide. In some cases, it obviously was, but there were a number of cases where there didn't seem to be anything wrong in the victims' lives. They seemed to have everything to live for. There's no way for us to go back in time and investigate this now, but it raises a really interesting question. Wow. Wow. And what's really interesting is uh, the photographs of Jane Carey, the one that uh, you see most frequently, has her with her hair braided, rolled up in coils and pressed to the side of her head, just like the ghost that Carol Layton saw. I really wanted to talk to Carol about this. And so I looked her up and was sad to see she died a few years back. Well, that leads us right into the discussion of uh, my favorite guy, Frank Bender. We're going to talk about Frank and Frank, unfortunately, has passed away as well. And you did meet him, correct? Yes. I met Frank Bender around 2002 because I was researching a ghost story in the Philadelphia area. And I spent a day with Frank. He was an amazing person. He's, he's a person, one of those people, they just have a light shining through them. Um, really good man. He did amazing work. He didn't get rich off of it. He probably made pennies per hour helping to solve crimes. And he did this 
through this uncanny ability. He was a forensic artist and he could reconstruct the faces of victims, victims who had lost all of their features. They're completely obliterated by homicide. And somehow he was able to come up with faces that matched the victim to such a degree, it was almost unbelievable. He could get the eye color right and the shape of the nose and even the eyeglasses. For instance, um, in the case of John List was the killer who murdered his entire family and then went on the lamb. Um, Frank did a age projection bust of John List. And when it was showed on America's Most Wanted, within 10 days, John List was arrested because someone recognized him from Frank Bender's bust. But most often he did reconstructions of homicide victims. And this happened by accident. Uh, he was um, classically trained in the Pennsylvania Academy for the Fine Arts, and he was an extremely talented artist. And one day he was uh, touring the medical examiner's office to um, study anatomy, and he was struck by the fact they had a Jane Doe there that they hadn't been able to identify. Uh, this woman had been murdered, I believe it was in an airport parking lot. She was from the Phoenix area. And Frank said, I bet I could figure out what she looks like. And so he created a bust. Let me let me interrupt for a moment just to point out to my audience that um, uh, Frank was uh, self-taught on this technique. Um, in fact, uh, Wikipedia calls it autodidact. I love that word, autodidact. Now, he does this by, first he takes the skull and he needs to clean it. He needs to get the flesh off. And he actually do this in his kitchen on a pot in the stove, which is, is sort of gross to think about. But when you think about what he accomplishes with this, he stops killers and he gets victims justice. Once he, once he has the skull clean, uh, he adds clay and he creates a new face. And then he makes um, a replica of the bust. And then the original is cleaned off and put back into evidence files. So the first um, victim he found justice for was a woman by the name of Anna Marie Duvall, who lived in the Phoenix area. She had been scammed um, in a real estate deal. A man by the name of John Martini had tricked her into taking a large sum of money out of the bank, I believe it was about $25,000, and then flying to Philadelphia uh, to supposedly meet with him to make this real estate deal, um, but he, he murdered her and took the money. Because of Frank Bender's efforts, the case was solved. Frank, since that time, was able to reconstruct dozens of faces. There is a ghostly aspect to uh, one of the cases that uh, Frank 
did solve, and that's what landed him in your book, Haunted in America. So why don't you tell us about that case? He does not really believe in ghosts, yet at the same time, he shared a story with me that um, is has, seems to have a paranormal ring to it, and I was thrilled when he told me I could put it in the book. Frank was most disturbed by the cases involving children. And there was a little girl uh, found in Philadelphia uh, who had not been identified. Uh, she was actually uh, five and a half years old. Her name was Aaliyah Davis, and she was a sweet little girl, a child of color. And Frank went to work on her skull and tried to create a bust to help identify her. He was unusually stumped. He just could not get the face right. And he knew it. And he tried and tried. And this didn't happen very often. But he could not get a sense of what she looked like. So that night, he went to sleep. And he had a dream. And he told me he was walking down a long hallway. And there was a door to the morgue. And the door was wide open, but there was only blackness beyond. Right in front of the door was a gurney. And it had a child laying on it. And that child sat up and looked at him and smiled. And he said she was so beautiful. She had dark skin with a reddish hue to it and these cute little pigtails that, that stuck out the sides of her head. And he said, I knew it was her and I knew it was right. So he woke up energized and he created this face. And he, he, he was, had no doubt in his mind that this is what the, the victim looked like in life. And he was right. It took a while, but a few years went by and Aaliyah's biological father saw one of the flyers that showed the photo of Frank's bust and he recognized his daughter. As it turned out, the little girl's mother who had lost custody of uh, her children temporarily when um, she murdered one of them um, was given custody of Aaliyah and her siblings. Aaliyah's father, Ronald Davis, wanted custody, but the judge gave custody to the murderous mother. And she and her new husband, Charles Fox, were abusive. And they, the, Charles would sometimes stab the children if they didn't do what he wanted them to. And he beat little Aaliyah to death. And her siblings watched, horrified. They could do nothing to help her. And it was Aaliyah. Uh, who was the Jane Doe. Now, um, Charles and Maria, the parents, continued to collect welfare checks on the dead girl for years. And thank God for Frank Bender. He had help from someone, and I suspect it was the spirit of Aaliyah. And Maria and Charles were arrested and convicted. The older sister testified against them in court. So the little girl got justice. The father, Ronald Davis, wanted to know 
Um, how did how did he get the skin color right? And how did he know about her pigtails? We don't know, do we? Up to now, we've been um, covering uh, ghostly apparitions that are uh, connected to or surrounded by uh, the victims in, in traumatic uh, death. But you've also covered a few uh, examples in your book of apparitions, appearances, uh, ghostly walkings of those who have committed murders, um, especially a couple of uh, folks who have been executed and sort of uh, didn't go quietly into that good night. One such uh, murderer was the notorious Eileen Warnus, who has had a couple of movies and documentaries made about her, and she was uh, convicted and executed for the cold-blooded murder of at least seven men. And um, you cover her in the case called The Lady Killer. Well, she haunts the last resort, and that's the bar she frequented in life, owned by uh, a guy named Al Bulling. And Al would let Eileen sleep in a trailer out back. Um, she, he felt sorry for her. She chose his bar because there was a pawn shop nearby where she would sell the items she stole from her victims. She was actually arrested at the bar. Um, FBI agents posed as bar bikers, the biker bar, lured her outside, and she was arrested in the 1990s. And uh, about a decade later, she was executed. And it was during a press event. The press actually gathered at the bar and were watching the news of the execution on TV there when weird stuff started to happen. For instance, there was a, um, a cup of silverware that just leapt off the, the shelf as they were sitting there. Who knows if it was just somebody bumped the shelf and the silverware came off or if the ghost of Eileen Wernos really did it. Uh, it startled people. And over the years, there's been quite a bit of activity. When attractive females are sitting at the bar, they get the sensation that somebody's playing with their hair. Um, Al said, told me that on breezeless days, when he'd be the only one in the bar, all of a sudden the back door would fly open. And in the time it took for someone to walk across the room, the TV station would then change as if somebody was turning the knob and changing the station. And he would say, who pissed you off this time, Eileen? And then as if she were continuing on, the front door would then fly open. Now, did you visit? Did you visit the I bar? I go there. But if I had, Al Bulling would not have been able to make a claim. He was quoted recently in a newspaper saying that every single female who visited his bar all felt sorry for Eileen Wernos. I would not have felt sorry for her because of, because of a tough childhood. Supposedly, they feel sorry for her. And I think this is what makes females so dangerous is we make excuses for them when they're evil. And as you know, my, my book, A Tangled Web, covers the story of an evil woman um, 
Liz Gollier, who murdered Carrie Farber. And I believe that she got away with murder for as many years as she did because she was female. We do not expect females to be dangerous. There is uh, a story uh, in your book that doesn't involve a murder, but still, in the same sense, it does involve a traumatic a death of a little girl. Um, and that one's called Final Curtain. Why don't you share that story with uh, my listeners? Yes, in Memphis, Tennessee, there's a theater called the Orpheum, and it is believed to be haunted by the ghost of a little girl named Mary. And she's been seen frequently over the years. She wears a crisp white pinafore. She has curly hair and she wears little white Mary Jane shoes. And the story is that she loved the theater and that she had died tragically in the 1920s when she was run over by a horse and carriage in front of the theater. Uh, a woman by the name of Barbara Jackson, who did ghost tours there, told me she learned of this from her grandparents. So the story is that Mary was hurt, but no one real realized how badly. She went into the theater, took her seat. When the play was over, she was gone, but she's never really left. And one of the spookiest things that happens is whenever a piano player plays the song Never Never Land, it seems to draw her to the stage. And one day during practice, some women were standing around watching when Never Never Land began to play. And they glanced to the back of the theater and they saw the little girl on the white pinafore dancing along to the music. And one of the women didn't know why and she didn't want it to happen, but she felt herself almost hypnotized by the sight, and she started to move toward her. And she was horrified, but she couldn't stop. Finally, she got a hold of herself, and she broke away. But the hypnotic uh, Mary is said to haunt the area. A plumber claims that he was working in the basement when all of a sudden he saw a little girl leaping over the pipes, and he said, hey, you're not supposed to be down here. And the little girl vanished. So as we are rapidly coming to the end of our time together, Leslie, let's uh, end on a slightly uh, lighter note, if you will. You do have, you cover uh, a case that doesn't involve a murder, uh, but is called uh, Ghostly Exposure and involves one of my favorite shows that I used to watch years ago called Northern Exposure. So tell us about Ghostly Exposure. Yes, um, in central Washington, nestled in the foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range, uh, is a little, little town called Roslyn, where the hit show Northern Exposure was filmed in the 1990s. And fans of the show might remember the bar in the show called The Brick. It's actually a real bar, and it's the oldest licensed bar in the state of Washington, and it's very haunted. 
And it's been about 20 years ago that I first visited there and wrote about uh, the bar for my book, Ghosts Among Us. Uh, I, when I went there, I was looking for witnesses to the ghostly activity. And I spoke to a bartender who told me that he once had an apartment upstairs from the bar, but he no longer did. Because one night he said he and his roommate um, were hanging out and they looked over at the security camera. They had a monitor in their apartment and it was trained on the bar. And they saw a little girl and she was peering up at them. She was peering up into the camera as if she could see them. His roommate leapt up and started running down the stairs. And the little girl looked startled and turned around and ran and hid behind the pool table. And the next day, he mentioned to a coworker that he had seen a ghost. And she said, oh, was it the little girl or the man? And that was it for him. He, he moved out. Oh, yeah, I would think so. Now, as you state in your uh, introduction, you're not trying to... Um persuade people to believe in spirits or to not believe in spirits, uh, that your book is not intended as a scary book, but an entertaining book, which I found it very entertaining, Haunted in America. So why don't you just tell us, uh, as we come to a close here, a few of your final thoughts about uh, ghosts and uh, active sites, and especially as they relate uh, to, of course, uh, things dear to my heart, murders. When it comes to haunted sites, the most active sites tend to be places where violence occurred. Murder, accidents, and suicide tend to be the top ghost makers. When it comes to homicide, that's the most intense, especially when a murder is unsolved. Now, my mom, um, Ann Rule, wrote the forewords for my first four ghost books. And she wrote about some of her experiences. Uh, my mom had a very strong sixth sense. And she felt that victims want their stories told. And she said as she was writing, she often had the sense the victims were standing behind her. She never saw them, but she felt they were helping her. And sometimes she would have stacks and stacks of documents, thousands of different documents that there was no way you could just reach into the pile and find what you needed. But again and again, she would reach behind her and manage to grab the exact document she needed. And she would whisper, thank you. And she did write about that in the forewords of some of my ghost books. So, um, what again? I'm. I want to introduce or or certainly direct people both to books by Anne Rule. Um, also, want to direct people to the Anne Rule fan page, which is a Facebook page. It's a great. I get a lot of my ideas now. It's a great group of people who interact about everything, not just Anne Rule, but all the once in a while, some people talk about an Anne Rule book that they just found, and so. 
It's a great um, uh, uh, resource, but they can also find uh, all you got to also put in is Leslie Rule books. That's what I do. And it just it just pop everything pops up and you can do Amazon. You can do Barnes and Noble. I like to when I can, I like to um, patronize brick and mortar. Yes, because I and we have several still here in Rhode Island in my area, small little stores, calendars, cards, tchotchkes and books and uh, the library. And we know that eventually, yes, Amazon sells yeah. uh, hard, you know, hard books, hard, you know, hard books. But the, eventually everything's going to be digital and it's going to be not good. I don't read on Kindle. I don't like Kindle or any of the other uh, ebook kind of concepts. So I do recommend you get this or any other Anne or Leslie Rule book. Get it at a brick and mortar. So again, I want to thank Leslie Rule from the bottom of my heart. You have a great day and a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Nice to see you again. Well, there you have it, folks. Another edition of Murder Most Foul. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you will tell your friends. You can learn more about the podcast and hook to all the prior episodes at the website, which is www murder most foul all one word no caps no spaces dot com so until we meet again stay safe and for god's sakes don't murder anyone <laughs>